0: Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Chris Bates from Wealthful. How you going, mate? Good, Alan. How you doing, mate? I'm very good, mate. Back for episode number four of our Property Investor mini-series. And today we're talking about uh, the portfolio investor. And this is the person that hires multiple properties, probably dresses up, um, goes to the party and says, I own this many properties. Um, So we're (laughs) going to talk about the ways this goes wrong, how you can, like from your experience servicing thousands of clients, how it may have gone right. Mm. We talked in episode three about the first time investor. And one of the things you emphasised there was investing quality. And second of all, you probably only want to hold one to two really good properties For a very long time, It's probably gives you peace of mind. It's a bit easier to manage, Um, but there are a lot of people, Chris, that you know sit back and they think, you know, I got twenty, I got twenty percent equity or forty percent equity in that that house there, and you know, it took me a while to get to my second property. My third one's even quicker because I've got more equity is building up, and then I'm a fourth one, Um, and they just keep going and going and going. Can you just describe um, from a high level? Maybe we can just talk about what's the appeal of being a portfolio investor in property.
1: Well, I think that there is sort of the belief that more is better, right? So buying more is going to get me a better result. Um, we think a lot of those people, well, a lot of, well, we think we know a lot of those actually come to us. Um, we've had clients with five, six, seven, you know, double-figure properties, and um, we actually, a lot of openly, we we talk through their assets. Um, even this one last week, you know, had three. I just talked him through, you know, like you know, this is, you, you bought a, a villa in the Central Coast, you know, that's gone nowhere near the housing market in the Central Coast. And, you know, you've got a villa in sort of Newcastle and how that's performing versus the housing market. And you've got an apartment in Toowoomba or Bundaberg or something like that. Um, and so I do think the appeal really is, is that um, two things, it's just the belief that, is that the number of properties is what matters, not the quality. There's probably a bit of egos driving that as well as that, um, they get a bit of equity usually through their house, to be honest. It's not their investments that have gone up. We feel like a lot of investors have um, got a bit, of, unfortunately got a bit of overconfidence bias at the moment. Um, mm. Because of low rates, it pushed up the affordability market, right? With, you know, a huge increase in demand. So a lot of people looking to buy now and the same amount of properties on the market, right? If not smaller, a number of properties on the market, because a lot of people want to sit on their hands and see how things go. So a real, and then we've got all time listings around the country and all the stats show that. So a small number of properties in the market, massive increase in demand and people willing to, FOMO was in the market, low rates. And so a lot of poor assets, unfortunately, have gone up, unfortunately, well, they've gone up for people. Um, a lot of investors think it was their skill, not luck. Um, and, uh, that, but, you know, the smart ones have actually come to us and they're saying, yeah, I never thought, I actually knew that was a dog. I knew it was never going to do anything, but it has <laughs> done. I'm going to take the money off the table. And they're also wishing they did that in 2021, to be honest, Um, because 2022 is different. You know, a lot of those affordability markets are already seeing issues with supply. A lot of people thinking about selling, not just the investors who went to those markets, but the person who said, "Oh, I've got a house worth two hundred thousand. Now it's worth three fifty. That's a lot of money to me." I'm gonna get out and downsize and buy something else and help me fund my retirement or mm. you know, and so a lot of um you know in these markets as well, you've got the opportunistic seller who never thought that market would be worth so much is getting out, cashing in, I guess. Mm. Um and so yeah, I, I think that's the appeal. It's just that you know, wanting. and I think there's a the real nice way of I want to get I don't want to be a pensioner. And this is the issue issues, um, you know, why the the battle with property investors is the bad guy. Well, no, actually they're doing two things. One, they there's uh, building wealth for their own retirement, less dependent on the pension, um, which is better for the society. One, two, they're providing rental accommodation. Um, three, they're creating more wealth for themselves that they're going to go and spend in consumerism, and that's going to help the economy, etc. The investor is not the bad person. I'm just saying that you know by you know this number of properties sort of thought process, um, I think people just uh, yeah they just think the number matters. The second problem they have is they just they go to a broker or a bank and they've got a certain amount of equity and they've got a certain amount of borrowing capacity and they just use it. And then three years later, like you said, Owen, they've got, you know, they've got a bit more borrowing capacity, usually from saving their property, um, paying their mortgages down and their house still doing well, um, which is usually the thing that's happening. they have got a bit more equity again, and then they've got a bit more borrowing capacity. Maybe they had a bit of wage increase and got a bonus or something. And then they go and buy another property. the beliefs around this sort of number of property strategy, um, it really used to only work um, when you could borrow 10 or 12 times your income and rental income, which you could, and when prices of property were much cheaper as well and yields were much higher back in like 2014 or 2015. Um, Because back then you could do that. You could leverage, you know, massively into a big portfolio of properties. Interest rates were higher, so that made more sense than you know, taking on a home. Um, but in the way that we are now, you can borrow only six or seven times your income versus, you know, 10 or 12 times your income back then. Yields are much lower, um, you know, etc. cetera.
0: So is, is it primarily people with higher incomes then that pursue this strategy? Um, would that be fair to say? Or- how, do, how would you characterize that? I
1: think this is another sort of, you know, you, you look at all the stats around when negative gearing was potentially going to go off the table um, a couple of, you know, the last two elections for the Labor Party, for example. Um, you know, you can see that a lot of the middle and, and even potentially lower income um, and, you know, medium to high income uh, are big in the property investing because they they're going, my income's not going to be enough for my retirement. I'm not going to be able to save enough. I'm going to have to do something else. I'm going to go and buy an investment property. And unfortunately, um, you know, because they're you know their house they're in, for example, is only worth a certain amount because that's what the market they're in, they feel it's wrong to go and buy an investment property worth more than their house. Um, and so they end up buying, spending less than their house and that pushes <laughs> them to, or they buy an apartment or villa because they don't want to deal with the maintenance of the house. So they make all these mistakes where they um, just focus on getting a property rather than getting a quality asset. And so I think the, the reality is if you want to keep on being a portfolio investor, Um, rents aren't ever going to be enough. You can't, and equity is never usually a problem after a certain point because you've built enough equity. You know, for example, you've got one or two good assets really growing for you. Equity becomes not the problem. Um, Income becomes the problem. And so if you want to keep on building out a portfolio of properties, what you do need to do is keep increasing your income. And so, yeah, you want to be buying quality assets, but your focus really should be I'm buying quality assets, but I'm also doing things to increase my income. I'm investing in my education. I'm looking for the next step up step up in the career. I'm starting my own business, etc. If you want to keep on buying property, you've got to do both. Mm. Um, the property itself won't just keep on allowing you to buy more. You've got to increase your income.
0: How about if, um, for example, let's say you buy a property five years down the track, you then refinance, you've got a lot of equity, um, assuming rents would have increased because the property prices increased. Do you see people kind of deleveraging um, or at least somehow not like not just keep on kind of binging on the equity? Like, is there a, is there a smarter way to use
1: equity in, in this strategy? We often say to clients, like a lot of clients, there's this attitude of buy and hold, which I, I sort of said in the last episode, you know, that's the ideal strategy. But sometimes... Um, What we encourage clients, if they have got something that's, you know, got a bit of equity tied up into it for two reasons. One, it's either grown or two, they're paid off the mortgage or they put in a, or three, they put in a lot of cash. They took out a small mortgage when they bought it. Um, Sometimes it is better when we know that, or, you know, especially if it was in the affordability market, the price of it's really good right now to sell it or was in 2021. Um, You know, they cash in, they pay the capital gains tax, pay off their home loan um, and try to get debt free on the home. Plus... For two reasons. One, that means, you know, more protection for when they get to retirement and, you know, uh, more cash flow on a monthly basis, which allows them to, you know, do other investing like super and other um, shares and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, and it, and it just allows them to have more borrowing capacity into, you know, a quality asset. So sell out an asset that's not great, pay off the home and then do other investing. So absolutely, sometimes people take money off the table to, to restructure things. How-
0: Chris, one thing we we kind of touched on in the third episode, but not—we probably should have touched on this in the first episode—was how about when you have the professionals around you? So a lot of people that pursue this type of strategy, they will have a mortgage broker like yourself. Um, they will most, they'll almost certainly have an accountant. Some of them maybe have a financial advisor. That maybe um, they might even have you know regulars like a buyer's agent that keeps their you know eyes on the street and seeing if properties come available i feel like it's important just maybe to cover off on some of the incentives of these people um for the because people that are pursuing the portfolio strategy might be getting advice that's maybe not necessarily the best for them it's partly because of the professional they're getting advice from
1: well i'm going to shoot our own industry first um (laughs) and the good news is with brokers though like um Brokers do an amazing job for creating competition in the mortgage market, right? Two in three loans now go to brokers. That was two in five. Right? Every And that broker market share is going up every year, more and more brokers, the number of brokers, et cetera. Um, hmm. And, you know, the reason variable rates are really competitive right now and um, second tier and third tier banks are getting bigger market share, et cetera. So brokers are doing a great job for getting better consumer outcomes. I do think, you know, unfortunately, what they are not, um, don't see themselves as and don't roll that they, maybe our best to play, but to see them more of ourselves as trusted advisors and say, look, you know what, maybe it isn't a good idea to go into more debt, you know? So the reality is if you walk into a mortgage broker, same as a bank, um, and you ask them for borrowing capacity and should you buy an investment property, they're going to say, absolutely, right? <laughs> um, because it's going to be more loans for them in terms of the upfront commissions, but also the trailing commissions. And so that's the big sort of elephant in the room there for mortgage brokers is that um, they're always going to incentivize you to take on more debt. And, you know, smart, you know, uh, people who are, taking um trying to build portfolios they try to get a good broker and the good broker is always getting a more borrowing capacity because they know how to use the system um but they're not stopping you and saying hang on a sec are you actually using this money wisely is there better things for you to be doing should you even be doing this you know most mortgage brokers won't stop you right um that's the truth the reality is if you go into an accountant's office or fairness to accountants there's great ones out there like great brokers um, they're going to want to sell your products, whether it's super funds or trusts or companies, et cetera, um, things that they can manage, things they can charge you ongoing fees for. And so a big thing I say with property investors is they sell them trusts. Um, they try to encourage them to use their super to buy because that means they're an ongoing sort of um, a tax return and audit cost that they're going to have to do. Um, create some sticky at the accounting firm. You're unlikely if you've got your a trust there, your company, um, your super fund, plus you're doing your personal tax returns you don't all of a sudden wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to swap accountants, right? Mm. Um, and that's unfortunately what we see at accountants is they're conflicted to sell, you know, structures. Um, you know, financial advisors, you know, and this is, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, not trained in property, you know. They're not, you know, I was a financial advisor for 13 years. We didn't get many property seminars. It was, this is the best fund, you know. This is the, you know, and, you know, marketing galore around funds, which, you know, your, best is the, your <laughs> listeners sort of know about. But... Um, and platforms, and insurance, uh, and superannuation, and um, you know tax str- uh, strategies. Property didn't really come into the, and a lot of advisors don't really know many buyers agents. Luckily, not many advisors would know more than five buyers agents. You know, we were with probably fifty of them, right? And have gotten, that, and a lot of them unfortunately get targeted from the property spruikers. You know, mm. they they hound financial advisors because they know they've got an education gap. They sell them on all this research. And then if you refer to us, we'll give them you this We'll give you this commission, et cetera. So you'll be really dangerous, unfortunately, going to financial advisors because they just haven't got the knowledge there for a lot of them around the property, et cetera. So hopefully that sort of lifts lid a little, little bit around the conflicts out there and, and the dangers of sort of going to a professional and then because you're just going to get whatever they're you, know, you don't want to outsource your whole future to someone and um, unless you're really certain that they've gone and done all the due diligence for you. They mm-hmm. haven't had a call from a developer that, hey, push this for us, Um Etc. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question.
0: Yeah, I think it's just always important to know the incentives of people, uh, even professionals. Um, financial advice has got a lot better in the last, say, five to 10 years, but still it's it's one of those things where you need to know. I we'll, would we'll, give an example in the final episode when we talk about end, the end game. But um, yeah, it's really important that you at least to understand the basics and who's selling what and why um, before you sign up for
1: it. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I went like I think the financial advice industry is in this best place that it's been since I ever gone got into the industry in 2007. We sold our business in 2020. Um, the you know the advisor numbers have almost halved, and that means a lot of old deadwood um, has actually left the industry. And the people who are sticking around because there's been a lot of changes with fee models, with you know, education standards, with um, you know, aggregators, costs to actually run a business are much higher. And so the only advisors that are sticking around now are ones that are in it for the long haul. And these are the ones who have got it that, you know, it's not about sort of assets under management fees. It's like about strategic advice fees. And that doesn't matter where you invest your money because they're not trying to manage your money. They're trying to give you strategic advice. And a lot of them get that property is the biggest asset class out there and they know that they need to get better at property. And they're investing in it and they, they are on the right train. Um, I've done courses to educate financial advisors, for example. And um, so I agree with you. I, I'm really positive financial advisors are, are heading in the right direction.
0: Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that I see a lot of is the one-stop shop. Um, that's maybe something for people to be mindful of too if you go to where they, the, the accountant does your tax return, sets up your trust, and they send, it, send you down the street, uh, the hallway to the advisor who then gives you advice that might be you know, not necessarily independent of the advice you receive somewhere else. And I think that's, it's just good practice just to have people question things uh, because at the end of the day, that's just important.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've worked in these sort of businesses before. I mean, a bank's like that, for example. Um, I mean, I would always prefer in uh, when I'm choosing a business, I'd want to really understand there's a reputation on the line here. I'm working with the business owner. It's usually a smaller business. They're the expert at whatever that is. Um and, you know, there's not a pressure on them to hit certain targets or um, et cetera. Because unfortunately, in those one-shop shops is, you know, the person stops and says, you know what? You shouldn't do any lending. You shouldn't buy a property. And then the broker's say, hey, on a sec, why are you saying no lending? You know, and then there's a pressure on the business owner saying, hey, on a sec, why isn't there referrals to the broker? And then, they're you know, and all of a sudden, the tax guys in there saying, hey, they should be doing a trust. I'm like, well, no, you shouldn't, et cetera. So these are all the issues that happen in one-stop shop. They become less about the advice. They become a cookie-cutter factory. And it's all about... Uh, bringing enough income across the business to keep everyone on their seats um, and the quality advice deteriorates pretty rapidly I think because it's hard to get great staff in big businesses um, let alone to watch over the quality of the advice when it's a big volume going through the business and so mm. yeah if it mm. was me I'd work with smaller businesses that are really focusing on that personalized advice
0: yep agreed um, okay so back to the, the reason I wanted to segue into that, Chris, is because I feel like it's an important point. When mm. people think that they're getting the right advice for their property portfolio, yeah. it might actually just be people greasing their own palms um, and making you feel like you're doing the right sophisticated, complex strategy um, when really you could probably keep it simple and have a better outcome. So how, yeah. how about then when it comes to, you know, this we've got this portfolio strategy of properties, how can people manage their debt, you know, ensure that they're not over-leveraging? Um, you know, we see a lot of interest-only loans. We see a lot of, you know, yep. not really like prudent, necess- not necessarily prudent leverage in these portfolios. Yeah,
1: and I just want to, and I, we'll, we'll talk about this debt structuring and it's a real massive part about it. So it's one is about quite buying quality assets, but BEATS, Really understanding how to protect yourself and uh, manage loans because it's a key element to it all. You know, things will all fall over if you don't manage that right. The last professional I didn't mention in that last question, which I think is important to, is if you walk into a buyer's agent and you ask them, is it a good time to buy? Yes, they're going to say that because that's what they do. They're, they're there to buy today. If they said it's not a great time to buy, they'd, get, they'd write no business. Mm-hmm. The second thing is if you think that their budget, You're saying, I've got 600000 to spend. Is that the right price to spend in your suburb? But yeah, I can find your quality asset for that. Most buyers agents will think that their location is the best for their budget. So you've got to be careful going to any property person and asking the wrong questions. You need to go like more top down first, you know? Think about, well, where is my budget? Where is the best place for me to go? Who's the right buyers agent to speak to before you go to any buyers agent and say, should I buy in your pocket, you know? You don't go to any west... Um, buyers agent in Sydney with a budget of 500000 um, know, Yeah, some probably wouldn't take you want, But, you know, that may not be the best location, for example. So buyers agents are also, you know, heavily conflicted in terms of their own patch. Um, and, you know, yes, you get some who refer to other buyers and say, you know, it's not really kind of client for us. Maybe you should go to Brisbane or maybe you should go to Melbourne. Um, but you just got to be careful, careful there as well. How do you choose a, how do you choose buyers agents to work with? So what we do is we get the budget right first, right? So we understand what's the equity, what cash do they need for renovation? How much extra can we keep for a buffer? So we don't just wanna use all their equity on the investor property, have no equity left over. If there's a drop in valuations or they need to get cash out or for a renovation. So we wanna to try to keep a buffer there as well. Uh, factor in the upgrade, et cetera. So, and then we also wanna know how much can they borrow? What's their budget, right? How is that likely to change as well if their income goes up in the next six months or that bonus or their commission element, et cetera. Um, and, you know, are they looking to upgrade? No. Okay, cool. So now we know a certain amount they can comfortably go and buy a quality asset. And then we go through the cities and we very much focus on the East Coast. We say Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, and the sister cities off that, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, Central Coast, Wollongong, Mornington and Geelong, um, we've just believed, you know, It's it, I could be wrong here and people in Adelaide and Perth are listening probably like, hey, remember us over here? Um, we just think that a lot of job growth is going to be on that corridor, you know, and a lot of investment and a lot of people are going to move up and down that wealth's going to grow in that corridor. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we really focus on those three cities um, rather than looking at, you know, the Perth and Adelaide, for example. Um, but we but to get into those markets, you know, you need a certain price point and to get into the quality assets in these markets, you know? So if your budget pushes you to one of those sort of locations, um, depending on your budget. Um, and then we go and say, okay, well, if it's Geelong, this would be a great buyer's agent, you know, for that budget at 900000 for example. Um, but if you've got a budget of 500000 a lot of the smaller budgets, we just don't go anywhere. Near. We think for them, there's either an income problem or it's an equity problem. And, you know, and if it's an equity problem, then build more equity. That's possible. If it's an income problem, build more income. Um, and if, if you can't change your income and you can't, cha- can't save much more equity, then maybe property's not the right thing. Maybe just put into shares. I'd rather have $150,000 of shares than a $500,000 cheap property that's unlikely to grow or have mm. a lot of risk it, attached to any growth. Um, so hopefully mm. that answers that question.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, how about then just coming back to the managing debt when you, you're trying to yeah. a portfolio, um, like what are some of the considerations people should have there?
1: Yes, yeah, so absolutely. You want to basically be always be focused on this um, because what you're trying to do is continue to build buffers, Kikimba to make sure that you maximize your investment debt, tax, tax deductions, and be also be paying off your home loan um, and always getting the optimal rate because as you get a bigger portfolio, you're taking on more debt, right? It could be one, two, three, four, five million dollars of debt, right? And every ten or twenty basis points starts to matter, right? The second thing is is that you've also uh, with investments, you know, the the debt on them is tax deductible, right? The interest that you pay, um, and what you want to do is is sort of uh, and your home isn't is non deductible interest, right? So whenever you've got uh, a home debt. You don't want to pay off your investment properties because then you're reducing your investment debt, which is reducing your interest that's tax deductible. When if you didn't focus on paying your investments off, you focused on paying your home off, you'd be paying off your home debt, which is non-deductible debt, and you can't claim that interest in your tax return. So with investments, what you do is generally you have to go P&I on your home, which is principal and interest, mm-hmm. and then you go interest only on your investment properties. Um, and uh, then you, you generally can get interest only for five years. And and the real risk is when people go into a lot of debt for investment properties under interest-only terms and then five years down the line, they move to principal and interest because they can only go interest-only for the first five years and then they can't refinance and get another five years interest-only. Nowadays, you have to basically um, go through a full process. Back in 2014, you could just do a form. Ask for another five years. Or you could even get 15 years interest only at somewhere like Westpac back then. Um, and so what you generally do to manage yourself is you're trying to always extend your interest only period. Assuming you're good with cash. You know, we're not, if you just go and spend every cent you've got, then you try to force yourself to pay off things. But if you know how to manage money, you're not frivolous with your money, you go interest only on all your investments and you're constantly trying to increase your interest only term. So as you're getting up to your five years, you're like, okay, I need to refinance and reset that for another five years. You're trying to release equity as much as you can, always to get up to 80% on your property values. And when times, when good valuations are around, that's a good opportunity to not get too greedy and, and cash in. So a lot of people who cashed in on 2021 um, valuations and got equity are pretty happy right now. We were telling a lot of clients that you know, prices are very high, valuations are very high. Why don't you release equity? Because when you release equity, it just sits in an offset account. It doesn't cost you anything and just creates a buffer. So if you don't get a tenant or you lose your job or you wanna spend money on the property, you've got that cash there and that can help you fund the mortgage, et cetera. So now these are all the things you're building buffers, always making sure your rates are good. I mean, the problem with rates is there's a loyalty tax in the system. Mm. A lot of industries have this where new customers get great pricing. Existing customers get screwed over, right? Um, and they—they they basically are trying to—they're um, preying on your apathy, right? That you're get a bit too lazy, you're too busy watching maths um, and <laughs> you know hanging out with your kids and you know weekend sport. You never get time to look at your mortgage or your, your um, electricity, for example. Um, and so the banks have got a huge problem. It's a loyalty tax. The RBA have written about it, um, and it's bigger than ever, to be honest, because. Um, what happens is the discounts we get on new customers are massive compared to what you would have got a discount five years ago. And so people have got mortgages, you know, more than 12 months, to be honest, are paying way overs on their interest rate unless they refinance and get, you know, new customer rates rather than existing. Um, so you always have to play that game. Um, yeah, so they're the main things. I mean, the fixing and, and variable, you know, generally speaking, you would go variable you know, over 30 years. That should be your go-to because, you know, all the numbers show that that generally wins. In the last three years, it's been a bit of a special occasion. You know, Banks have got so much cheap funding. There was an RBA funding line, um, et cetera. And fixed rates were just astronomically low and much lower than the variable rates. We're getting variable rates at 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, fixed rates at 1.9, right? And um, the variable rates come down a lot. Now it's just under 2%, but fixed rates are no longer you know 2%. They're now 3% or 4%. So now all our clients are variable, but sometimes you use fixed to protect yourself of future um, rate increases. Um, so they're, they're the main just structuring things that you're, you're trying to do.
0: It makes a lot of sense to free up that equity, put it in the offset account. You still get the benefit of the interest, you know, because you've still got the equity, so to speak. Um, you just,
1: you have that flexibility, which is really important. It's kind of releasing it. Um, offset accounts are a huge thing, and they're, they're absolutely an amazing thing for people who are trying to build, um, take on debt. Because what it does is it means that you can pay off your debt by putting money in an offset account. Because interest is calculated daily. I owe a million dollars. I've got a hundred grand in my offset account. I'm paying interest on nine hundred thousand. If I take fifty thousand dollars out of my offset account, I'm paying interest on nine fifty. Right. So you're paying interest on a smaller loan, but you've still got complete liquidity. And so when I say going P and I on your home loan, yep. But it doesn't mean you pay it off faster. And you should extend your loan turn every couple of years to 30 years because it it means that you're paying it off slower and what it means you've got more cash in your offset and what you're trying to do is build your offset as much as you can um, keep your investments under interest only so i missed the offset point The, the thing about cash out in equities is sometimes it's really hard and it was hard a few years ago especially around the royal commission um and sometimes getting cash out up to 80% is really easy. You know, we've done some massive cash outs in the last few months, well over a million dollars, a million, 1.6, over $2 million. We're doing a 2.7 at the moment. Um, big cash outs um, are possible when times the banks are willing to do it. And sometimes like, no, you can't get cash out more than a hundred grand. And so um, secondly, your valuation can always fall, right? So you can get cash out today and your places are 2 million. Well, now the places the valuation is 1.7. You can't get any cash out. Um, or maybe you've, you know, that client I was talking on a previous episode high income, maybe they can get cash out today, but when they start that business in two years' time, they can't get any cash out. That's the perfect time to get cash out pre, you know, income drops. So, um, obviously, assuming that you um, you don't go and waste that money on lifestyle spending. For or sure. Yeah, that's, the, that's um, the big asterisk. And that's it. And, and we're talking to an educated, sophisticated client, right, um, who is not at that sort of starting out stage, he's got seven credit cards and a car loan and enough <laughs> pay and um, you know, this is the type of clients this is suited towards. It's not to that sort of first investor that's you know you know living off their home equity to pay for school fees and you know go on holidays. That's just a, a different type of mentality.
0: Yeah, um, when we were talking just before off air we're saying like, what do we want people, what do we want listeners to get from this series? Because yeah. a lot of the stuff that we talk about is share investing, businesses, companies, that sort of stuff. And basically what I wanted to do from with this is just basically activate people, like to get them, and we both want that, like to get them thinking about property, how they can use it taxable tax effectively or if they have equity and how they can use that because I've spoken to a lot of people on the show and I know you listened to this episode that we did a while back with uh, Andrew Page and he talked about one of his bigger regrets even though he's a fantastic share investor absolutely fantastic he regrets selling his home even though he did so well from shares because he should have just thought differently more proactively about um, maybe I could have used a line of credit and bought the shares instead rather than just selling out of my my house and moving rentals with a family Um, there is
1: um, I mean, the other point to that, Owen, is is that it's very hard to argue with leveraged property returns versus share market, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we uh, talk about, you know, for example, we had lots of clients buy in um, Brisbane mm. and, you know, pre this last boom and you know, they bought, you know, old Queenslanders near the city, um, you know, on good streets, that things that, you know, people leaving Sydney and Melbourne would love to live in, you know, the quintessential sort of, nice-looking homes, right? Maybe they need a renovation or something like that, but they're solid land. They're buying them from 700 up to, say, $1.1 million. Most of those properties are up 70 80%. The mm-hmm. investment properties, so they haven't put any cash involved to buy them. They've just been a negative. and And, and um, rents up there uh, were almost covering the mortgages because yields up there were quite high, you know, around 4 or 5%. Mm-hmm. That had a big cash flow cost. So for that small, potentially negative equity, you know, the million dollar property is now worth, say, at 8, 1.8, right? Um, you know, even after capital gains tax, that's like 600 grand. And I know this isn't what you typically see. Um, and even, you know, someone who's put in 150,000 to buy a home and then that property's gone up 50%, well, that means their cash has gone from 150 to say 450, right? Uh, to 600, you know, which is a 400%, you know, 300% return after tax. You know, it's hard to compete with that in property. And that's only, so, the you know, if you do it right around property, um, around both homes and investments, um, it's really hard to compare those returns to day-to-day share investing that's unleveraged. Even if you're getting outperformance on the markets and even if you're in small cap, mm. et cetera, you'd have to be getting 20 or 30% compounding returns to compete with these um, sort of returns in property. Now, I'm not saying this is the returns you're going to get going forward. No, no. The growth return going forward is going to be much, much lower Is um, for the market because we haven't gone from one income to two incomes. Um, buying a property, you know, we, the the husband, this is very stereotypical. Used to work, then now the wife works. the one is maybe worked part time. Now both are working full time. and They're both on high incomes, and they're both, you know, that's why they can. So you're not getting those uplifts. You're not getting the interest rate um, tailwind. Um, you know, potentially lots of other things as well. So mm. no, um, you make a
0: fair point. Yeah. yeah. So
1: growth on property is going to be much lower. And you know, this this oh, oh probably market. I've seen the nonsense pop up as well after this boom. Oh yeah, property does double every 10 years and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, no, that was under a massive tailwind, you know, and it really things that, you know, rates dropping to 2%, that's what caused this. So, um, but if you're even getting 4% compounding returns on property, which would be a great result, that still versus share investing because it's leveraged is really hard to Mm beat.
0: Yeah, no, you make a great point. Um, Even um, just the tax advantage nature of certain things as well helps. Um, And I I think people become very, um, um, is it um, pariahical? Is that how you say it? Um, Yeah. Or parochial where they just kind of think, now this is me, I'm a share investor. I don't worry about the property. I'm a property investor, I don't worry about shit. You know, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're talking about wealth creation here. So that's basically what we're trying to get to the bottom of
1: If you are one of those, you've got to realise that you've sort of got a blind spot, right? Um, If you are an avid share investor, uh, and you're done really, doing really well out of shares, um, you've got to also understand that, you know, potentially you could have made some money in property, uh, maybe upgraded your house. Uh, we've seen this a lot of people is that they, you know, potentially could have just upgraded their house and made millions of dollars there as well because they had the income, they had the cash. Um, and so you can do both, you know, that's the thing. And I think um, the other thing is, is it's a stage of life thing, you know, you have to admit that when someone is younger and they've only got a smaller amount of cash and they can borrow a good income, they can get into a great property, that's going to be better than them leaving that money in a share portfolio, compounding at 7 8%, right? Um, and so it's a life of stage thing. I think you use them as tools at different market cycles. Um, you know, you go in harder on shares at some points, you know, um, as you get close to retirement. Residential probably doesn't make sense. We generally don't work with clients in their sort of 50s, 60s. We sometimes will help out, you know, the parents of clients, et cetera, and just make sure they're not making any silly mistakes. But we don't look for that uh, market at all. And the reason is, is it's really hard to advise them on making any sound properties is because residential property doesn't really make sense getting close to retirement I'd much prefer to be you know building a share portfolio and using my equity for that and having like maximum super and um and commercial property and all these other things versus mm. lumpy residential property. Uh, so it's a stage of life thing use them both but um don't sort of sit too much in one camp because I think you're um, yeah you know, you're missing the trick.
0: Um that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. The last episode of our property investor mini series. We're going to talk about <laughs> um, how do you wind down if, you, if that's your way. Like how do you transition if you've got property if you're comfortable. What do you do next? So Chris Bates from Wealthful, uh, mate, wealth of knowledge. Um, we're going to be back for the final episode um, right after this one. Um, if you haven't already listened to episodes one, two, and three where we talked about. Um, basically an intro into property investing. We talked about uh, upgraders and we talked about first time investors. Um, Chris, I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for joining me.
1: See you soon, Owen.